Good morning. Welcome again. We are continuing through the Psalms of Ascents. Uh, we are in the book of Psalms. That's, if you're new to the Bible, that's in just about the very middle of the Bible. Uh, psalm is an old English word that just means song. These are songs that uh, various people throughout uh, the Old Testament times uh, wrote to God and about God, and they show us as God's people how he wants us to worship him and how we are to bring our struggles and our sufferings and our emotions to him. So we're in the Psalms of Ascents. We're at Psalm 125. I think that's on page 517. This is right in the middle of this stretch of Psalms about God's people traveling back home. So let's read together. Psalm 125. Song of Ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless us now as we come to feed upon your holy word. Um, Reveal its truths to us clearly so that we might shine as your light in this world brightly. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our great friend and king. Amen. Apparently, the business of doomsday bunkers has been booming for the last few years. Uh, I found one company in East Texas. For about $20,000, they will build you a very simple and very small concrete bunker to protect you from tornadoes and maybe a nuclear bomb. But there's another company, if you're hoping to find the end of the world a little more enjoyable... There's another company in East Texas that will sell you for about $10 million. You and 50 of your friends can have a bunker called the Aristocrat that comes with a gym, a sauna, a bowling alley, and of course a shooting range. But it does not, the price does not include delivery. Uh, one academic study I came across from a couple of years ago uh, ranked New Zealand as the best place for surviving global societal collapse. Uh, You've maybe heard about uh, the Silicon Valley tech billionaires who have been building their own bunkers out there for the last few years. The question before us this morning from this passage is this. Where is your security? Are you safe? Where do you look when everything falls apart? Our passage today is yet another reminder from the Psalms of Ascents that we must look to God for our peace and our security as we live in a chaotic and hostile world. Uh, We said a couple weeks ago that the Bible teaches that this world both is and is not our home. It was originally created for humanity to inhabit as its steward and as its caretaker. Uh, The original human call was to cultivate this world under God and for God. 
But because humans have rebelled against God, this is what the Bible calls sin, because humans have rebelled against God, we and this world have now fallen under his righteous judgment. And so what that means now is that this world is fundamentally twisted and broken so that in its current form, at least, it's not our home. We are instead looking forward to our true heavenly home in the life to come, particularly when and how God is going to bring heaven down to this earth when he renews and restores all things at the second coming of Jesus. In the meantime, those who love God, the Bible says, are pilgrims in this world. We're not home yet, and we often fall prey to this dark enchantment that convinces us that this really is our home. So that being a pilgrim is hard. It's painful. Psalm 125 is here to ground our hearts and our minds in the source of our true security as we journey as pilgrims. It's here to help us ground our hearts and our minds and our true security, especially in situations where this world is being ruled by unjust leaders and by evil institutions. And so I've got three points to you for you today from this simple but powerful little song. First, we have real security in trusting the Lord. Second, we have real security in knowing his plan. And third, we have real security in seeking his blessing. So first look at verses 1 and 2 there at the beginning of the psalm. We have real security in trusting the Lord. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now this idea of trust or of faith is one of the most important things for us to understand the Bible and for what it teaches us about how to relate to God. To trust the Lord does not mean knowing facts about God. It does not mean agreeing that God exists. It does not mean take a leap in the dark, maybe until something better comes along. And it does not mean perform religious services in hopes that God will notice and pay you back. What the Bible means when it talks about trusting the Lord is this. It means you depend on him. It means you put your confidence in him. It means that you have become convinced that he is yours and you are his. Even though you cannot see him and you have not yet seen what he's promised you for your future. It's very similar to the way that a child trusts and even just knows that his parents are going to take care of him. If you met a little boy who was saving up food under his bed in case his parents forgot about him, or a little girl who was offering her parents money to pay them to get them to feed her, you would know that something very bad had happened. Something has gone horribly wrong in this relationship. We can and we should trust in the Lord as the good, generous king and father that he is, even when the world around us is crumbling. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, first by addressing God as our father, who art in heaven. We confidently trust him to provide for us based on his promises for a future that we do not yet see. 
We've spent the last few weeks earlier in our worship service reading through Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, And there we heard at the very first verse of that chapter that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. It goes on to remind us and show us that our spiritual fathers and mothers before us all died in faith. They did not receive the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To trust in God is the fundamental posture of the pilgrim. And so that's why Psalm 125, all the, in the middle of all these psalms about pilgrimage, it's why Psalm 125 reminds us that our real security comes with trusting the Lord. It says that we're like Jerusalem's Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. It means that we're steady, even when our lives and our bodies and our society are faltering. Now, why can't we be moved? Is it because our faith is so strong? Is it because the church is filled with smart and pious people? No. And definitely no. Verse 2 says that the Lord himself, the Lord himself is the reason that we can't be moved. And so just like the mountains surround Jerusalem, it says that the Lord surrounds his people. Not just for a little bit, not just when he feels like it, but forever. He's guarding us. He's watching us all the time. He's not only the what, but he's also the why of our trust. Uh, There's a story, it's a little bit of an obscure story, but it's one of my favorites in the whole Bible. There's a story in an Old Testament book called Second Kings about an Old Testament prophet named Elisha, uh, where his assistant, they're standing in Jerusalem, his assistant looks out over the walls of Jerusalem and he sees this huge army from Syria, this huge hostile army camped around the entire city. Uh, And his assistant there is totally terrified. What can we possibly do? There's no way we could overcome such a large army surrounding us on every side. But then the prophet Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays and God answers the prayer that his assistant might be able to see the angelic battalions of God patrolling the city all around in the form of fiery horses and chariots. And so you see the point. No matter what's happening to us, We need to know that God Almighty himself is on our side, even when you can't see it, that he's watching over us with perfect wisdom and love. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says in Romans chapter 8 that by God sending his son Jesus to die for our sins, he's clearly demonstrating, Paul says, that God is for us, that God's on our side. Paul goes on to say, therefore, that means no one can be against us. And then Paul says that if God has already given us his very best in sending his own dear son to die for us, that means necessarily that God will graciously give us all things. It's all downhill from there. And then Paul says that not even the devil himself can land any accusation against any one of God's people. 
And then Paul says that that means that nothing can or will separate you from the love of God in Christ. You see, our Heavenly Father surrounds His children at all times. And this is something that we can and we should know so much more clearly now because of the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus. Suffering and affliction are sure to come, but God watches over us through all of it. Think about Job. You know Job in the Old Testament? He's sitting on his ash heap. He's scraping the pus from his sores with broken pottery. All his children are dead. His wealth is gone. His wife is still barely alive. And all she's doing is telling him and nagging him to just curse God and die. Or consider a second century pastor named Polycarp being burned alive by the Romans because he refused to renounce Christ after having served him for 86 years. Or consider the reformer John Knox in Scotland being enslaved on a French galley ship for preaching the gospel. Or consider Corey Ten Boom wasting away in a Nazi concentration camp. Or consider Joni Erickson Tata paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident spending decades of her life still serving God and talking about how good he is even in suffering. Trusting in the Father, all of these people could not and cannot be moved. He's been with them. He's been around them through all of it. And it's the same for you. So that's our first point. We have real security in trusting the Lord. But now look at verse 3 for the next point. We have real security in knowing his plan. In knowing his plan. It says there in verse 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. We've been saying that God surrounds and secures his people through all kinds of suffering, which is true. But here you see the psalm focusing more specifically on one kind of suffering. God's people living under a scepter of wickedness. Or maybe you could translate that as a criminal scepter. They and we are sometimes in situations where we see the rightful inheritance of Jesus and of all his adopted brothers and sisters, the church, yes, but even the whole entire world, situations where you see the inheritance of Jesus being trampled and twisted by evil and hypocritical rulers. And here in this psalm, it's especially political leaders in view. Now, this was often the case in Israel's own history, not just being kicked around and taken advantage of by their own kings, although that happened a lot, but also being kicked around and taken advantage of by evil, idolatrous empires. The Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, on and on and on and on. And so these criminal rulers, pointing to a scepter, saying, I have a scepter, therefore you better listen to me. It's in my hand, after all. These evil criminal rulers were occupying, co-opting, attacking God's own people, in the land that he promised them. 
They seize all kinds of power, all kinds of wealth for themselves and their cronies. They use their criminal scepter to rob and oppress people who can't do anything about it. So you can see that this psalm is written in the midst of one of these seasons where those with power were corrupt and tyrannical. But even so, the writer says that those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. Why? Well, first of all, because he says God is not going to allow this criminal scepter to rule for very long. It may look like the scepter is at rest. Did you catch that word here? It looks like the scepter is just resting there forever and ever. It looks like its terrible burdens are going to suffocate people forever. But the Bible is very clear that it is ultimately God who raises up kings, even the wicked ones, and who tears them down, sometimes by bringing an even more wicked king in. God will not and cannot allow evil to reign forever. That's the main thing. In the words of a hymn that we sing together sometimes, this is still my father's world. The hymn says that even though the wrong seems oft so strong, God's the ruler yet. So if our first point sounded like that part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, Our Father who art in heaven, this point sounds like the part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we see here that it is God's unshakable plan to shatter the scepter of wickedness. But verse 3 also says that God's plan is to spare his people from falling away from him. We also ask him to lead us not into temptation. Verse 3 says that God puts a stop to tyranny, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Because, of course, when God's people are living under unjust, corrupt, or even just plain incompetent rulers, we face all kinds of temptations to sin against him. Now, of course, like many Christians have done over the centuries, we might cowardly go along to get along. We might treacherously turn against each other, inform on each other. Those are obviously very bad ways to respond to tyranny. But there are also more subtle and more culturally acceptable ways to sin against God while living under tyranny. We can obsessively follow the news We can idolize politicians. We can become profoundly cynical and despairing. We can become mean and bitter and hateful in our thoughts and our words about rulers and about people who support them. Those are all ways of turning against God when we're suffering in this kind of way. In the last chapter of his really big theology book, uh, 16th century reformer John Calvin talks about how Christians should respond when they find themselves living under a tyrant. He says the first thing, this is shocking, and I come back to this a lot. He says the first thing you need to understand is that evil rulers are God's judgment on an evil people. So that even as Christians, our very first response should be to repent. Not just to repent of other people's sins, which is really fun, and we all like doing that but to repent of your own sins, 
to repent of our sins as a church and as a body. From there, John Calvin says, God wants us to face up to our spiritual weakness. He wants us to be confronted in a very painful way with our own tendency to build our lives on worldly comfort and ease. God wants us to see that this kind of suffering might be actually a wake-up call from God. It might be a mercy. But at the same time, you see here in Psalm 125 that God knows that we're weak. He knows that we can't handle very much. And that he's only going to ever allow as much suffering as his beloved children can handle. Suffering brings a huge temptation to turn away from God in bitterness or in compromise. But God never allows so much suffering in your life that you have to do so for good. United to Christ, united to Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, you are ultimately secure in the loving care of the Father. Listen to what Jesus says. This is from John chapter 10. Talking about you, if you trust in Jesus today. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You're safe. You're secure no matter what's happening around you. You have true security in trusting the Lord and you have true security in knowing his plan, both his plan to break the wicked scepter and also his plan to keep his people from being ultimately overwhelmed by it. And third and last, you have true security in seeking God's blessing, in seeking his blessing. This psalm, like all the psalms, shows us how to pray. It shows us that God wants us to talk to him, that God wants us to ask for him to do the things that only he can do. We ask him to give us good things. We do say in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But we also see here in Psalm 125 that we ask him to save us from the evil things, like we do in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. You can see that in verses 4 to 5 here. The psalmist says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. We ask for God to do what's best for us and what's best for his world. Not just because he tells us to pray, and so, okay, I guess I have to pray. Not just because it's subjectively good for you to pray, although it is subjectively good for you to pray. But ultimately, because prayer is one of the greatest ways that God actually works in this world. It's one of the greatest ways that God actually changes things in this world. And so we ask for God to bring good things on his people. Or in the words of the psalm, those who are good, those who are upright in heart. Uh, Now I realize that some of you hear this language in the psalm about God doing good things for good people, for people who are upright. Some of you hear that language and you get really worried because you're painfully aware of how sinful you really are, even as a Christian. But we need to rejoice in the great biblical teaching of justification, that big but incredibly important word. This idea that because you are united to Jesus by faith, that now means that God counts you as righteous in his sight, even though you're not actually righteous. And that forgiving, justifying love of God in Christ is something so shockingly wonderful 
that when you embrace it, you cannot help but be changed. You're so grateful that God would forgive you that you now want to obey God. And actually, more and more, even if it's really slow, more and more you do obey God. So there are a couple of real senses in which still sinful Christians can and should be called good. They can and should be called upright. As God's people, you're fully accepted in God's sight, but also being transformed by his love. As God's people, we can and we should confidently ask him to do what's good for us. But you also see here in verse 5 that part of the good blessing that God wants to give to his world and to his people is his judgment on evil. His judgment on evil. The psalm says that God will lead away, send off into exile. God will lead away those who are obviously evildoers. But we also need to see here that God's going to bless us and this world by also leading away a different but related group of people. It says that God will lead away those who turn aside to their crooked ways. Literally, it says those who bend their winding tracks. It's a way, I think, of describing hypocrites. A way of describing deceivers and liars. Those who seek to mislead God's people through twisting his word. Through putting on a Christian show so that they can gain status or power or wealth. And in many ways, this is far worse than being outrightly wicked and godless. The New Testament is constantly warning about the allure of false teachers, about those who would rise up from within churches to destroy them and devour them. When you think somebody is your friend, they can do a lot more damage than when you know they're your enemy. And so it's good that even the hypocrites and the deceivers are on notice. God's watching them too. He will not allow them to ultimately harm his people. And so in asking our good God to be at work in the world, we are praying for him to be at work against all forms of evil. Overt, obvious evil, yes, but also covert, hidden evil. We find true security in seeking his good blessing. And of course, as many of us could testify, God's idea of what's good for us, what's truly good, sometimes is very different than our idea of what's good for us. But we trust in him. So that like Mount Zion, we cannot be moved. Because we know, in the words of Romans 8 again, we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. And yet, even though we know that he's going to do what's good, you see here that we still need to ask him for what's good. We need to seek his blessing. We need to pray for it. Prayer, of course, is something very simple, but many of us know is incredibly difficult. Jesus' own disciples, walking around with Jesus all the time, getting to listen to him all the time, even the disciples have to come to Jesus and say, we don't get it. 
you got to help us learn how to pray. Please teach us. And so what an encouragement that when Jesus teaches them to pray, he begins with these precious words. Our Father, who art in heaven. We're talking to a loving, generous, and mighty Father. We're secure, not just because he's the one ruling over the world with justice, although that's true. We're secure ultimately because he's the one surrounding his children with mercy. We can never ultimately be shaken. We can confidently pray. We can confidently expect the final blessing at the end of this psalm. We can expect it and pray for it for ourselves. Peace be upon Israel. So live in and by the Father's peace. You're truly secure. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this great security that we have in your love for us. We thank you for the great security that we have in being joined to Jesus by faith. You cannot and will not reject us because you cannot and will not reject him. And so remind us and assure us of our true security that we have in the love of Christ. Remind us and assure us, especially when we are confronted by suffering, when we are consumed with bitterness and cynicism, when the world seems so powerful and so overwhelming with all its forces of darkness. Remind us that we are truly secure. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.